You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. All right, it is episode number 162 of Play by Playcast. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download, however you have found this podcast. A podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. My name is Joel Gadette, and this is a podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. You can find us, as always, on social at play-by-playcast or at pxpcast. I am at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. You can email me, J-G-O-D-E-T-T, at bsu.edu. If you missed our conversation last week with Jeff Munn, we covered a ton of ground from uh, the variety of different places and types of jobs that Jeff has had uh, through media relations to public address to radio play-by-play to covering a World Series to working in the Alliance of American Football. We hit a ton of ground, uh, so check out that. Greg Rubel was our guest the week before that uh, from the BYU Cougars, and Dave Tasca, a producer-director from ESPN, uh, was our guest three episodes ago. If you're just new to the podcast and you want to check out our entire back catalog, it is all available to you. Our guest today on episode number 162 comes to us from the world of soccer broadcasting. Her name is Jen Hildreth, and you might know her from, you know, having just watched the World Cup on Fox. She's broadcasted the last couple of times, uh, 2015 and 2019, and Jen's new venture is as part of the ACC Network. She'll actually be on the call Sunday from Tallahassee, when Wisconsin travels to Florida State, 2 o'clock on the ACC Network. Check your local listings, and if you have AT&T U-verse, don't bother. It's not on there. I'm sad. If anybody has a login for something that I can use to watch the ACC Network, that would be really great, because right now uh, I'm up a creek. Uh, but Jen Hildreth is is uh, going to be kicking off the soccer coverage on the ACC Network Sunday uh, with the defending national champions, the Florida State Seminoles taking on Wisconsin at 2 p.m. Today she joins us because selfishly, I have a soccer broadcast. If you're listening to this podcast on time, it's this afternoon. Ball State opens up its season at home on ESPN+. Plus. They'll take on Eastern Illinois. And for me, it's the first soccer broadcast I have done, A, on television, and B, in a decade. Which is weird to say, because that means I'm old. Uh, but the last time I broadcast soccer was, there was video, it was an internet web stream, there was a single camera that just followed the action, called it like radio, um, not well, but called it like radio, uh, was when I worked at USF back in 2009, the fall of 2009, and then I did a very little bit of soccer for Orange All Access when I was in college, like a handful of matches, but other than that, It was a new experience, or this will be a new experience for me. And I wanted to talk to somebody who was, A, very good at doing soccer, and then, B, who could kind of walk us through exploring a sport that you're uncomfortable with as a broadcaster. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast with a litany of people. How do you broadcast something new? How do you prepare yourself for what's uncomfortable? So I figured, what better way than to demonstrate that than to physically do it. So today's episode, we're going to walk through, all right, I'm walking into soccer. Jen Hildreth, how do I do it? It's kind of a step-by-step of what to know going into uh, A, something new, and B, soccer specifically. So if you want to attack it from both of those angles, you'll get kind of both of those views uh, on this episode. And then we'll get into Jen's career as well uh, because it's pretty awesome. Uh, Jen was a collegiate athlete a multiple sport collegiate athlete, and then bounced professionally into writing at first for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
and then got into video through her job there um, at the newspaper and then slowly but surely started to do more for Fox Sports South, um, carved out a niche in the Atlanta market, wound up as part of the Atlanta Braves broadcasts, uh, Raycom Sports, ESPNU, SEC Network, Big Ten Network, now the ACC Network, um, the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament, and uh, of course, uh, the NWSL on Lifetime when that was a thing, and she's still very actively involved with the NWSL, and um, the World Cup in 2015 and 2019 as well. So Jen's really well-versed in a ton of different sports, uh, but I most associate her, at least recently, um, with the soccer coverage, I think first and foremost because of of the World Cup. But uh, that's also the first thing she's going to do on the ACC Network this week. So without further ado, how do I do this? We'll find out how I'm getting prepped for a soccer broadcast today with Jen Hildreth on PXP Cast. I think a good broadcast of soccer um, can be done in a number of different ways. There is no one type that you have to do to have it be good. You can have the more British sound of calling a match where there's a lot more flow. There's more poetry. Uh, at least that's how I hear those matches called, or you can have, I would say what is, kind of been developed as a more American sound, you know, the JP Della cameras, the John Strong's of the world, where I think they have a very different way that they call a match, both of which are good. But I think at the heart of any good soccer broadcast is you are taking the viewers on this journey and you are letting them know when they need to pay attention. So it can flow along. You're informing them as they go along. You're hopefully telling them things that they didn't know before, be it about players or things you've learned, talking to coaches, things like that. So you're sprinkling information throughout, but at the heart of everything you do, of course, is protecting what's in front of you. So if the game is great, it's actually a little less that you need to do. You just make sure you are letting people know the points they need to pay attention to. That's kind of how I look at it. It's a TV game, so they can see what's happening on the screen. But you need to elevate the moments where there's drama and you need to kind of help figure out how to carry the broadcast in the moments where there's not. Whether that's just taking a breath, pausing, you know, letting the pictures play out or whether that's when you start introducing some stories. So I think a great broadcast is a always has to be a good mix of play by play call. What's the action that's in front of you? And then also figuring out what and where to sprinkle in some of those other details that help fill out a broadcast. So let me dive into that piece of it a little bit more, um, especially because uh, you've got such a blank canvas with soccer because, I mean, obviously there's things happening, but your <laughs> your, your goals being scored are, are, are or can be few and far between. It, it's different. <laughs> yes. It's different than like a baseball where for three hours I've, there's going to be a pitch every 10 seconds and I know that and, and I can weave in and out of that and, and use that as a foundation. With basketball, obviously every play is happening at least every 30 seconds. Um, how do you, script is the wrong word because I don't, I don't mean it from a like, how do you plan it out? But how do you break down in your mind how you're going to take hmm. these 90 minutes and, and weave that story and figure out where you're going to lay out and how not to just bombard people and realize that <laughs> I've just been talking for the first 15 minutes and it's been wall to wall sound and now I'm out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think that's all a feeling out process as you're going along in the match, but I'd say I go into it and I think, and what I've always been taught is when you start off, hit the big stories, hit what they really need to know your information provider at that point, that's pre kickoff. That's right after kickoff. You're doing a little more player identification at the beginning, you know, give people names and numbers. Don't assume that they all know who all of these players are and their background. So that's when I think you do a little bit more of just identification. And that really is more play-by-play at that point. I mean, the analysts, a lot of analysts I work with anyway, sort of like to sit back and watch and watch what's happening in front of them. And while they're doing that, I'm busy just letting people know who's out there. Important players to watch. You work with your producer and director on that as well. But then I think you always know, and, and maybe more right. so, more so than like a basketball, where I feel if you've yes. got eleven people on a very broad pitch, it's probably more important to identify <laughs> who they are early on. Yes, and you need to you need to follow the screen with that too, as as I've always been told. 
the people only see what's on the screen. Yeah. So if I'm busy blabbing away about the back four, but the camera happens to take a tight shot of a forward, that's not helping anybody. So sure. you, you do need to be in sync with your producer and director on that and kind of always keep an eye. I watch the field probably a little too much. I probably need to train my eye a little more to keep an eye. And I always sort of have it in, in my peripheral vision of what's going out over programs so that I can see if there's a tight shot. And then I know that's my opportunity to talk about that person, or I will set up with our producing director and say, okay, we need to get these three players in. We need shots of them. First three dead balls. Let's try to get these players because people need to know who they are. So, um, and then I think as the match goes on, generally, as it's building from the back, that's when you can both talk, you and your analyst. You can get into a conversation there. You can start going off topic. It doesn't have to be just exactly what the play is on the field. But once it crosses midfield is when you need to be ready to call the action because that's you, you have to be – you never want a story to cut in onto a potential goal. And it happens far more than I would like. It still happens, and you're kicking yourself because sometimes you cheat. You think, I can get one more word in, and then they score, and you realize you botched it. Because really, I think a good play-by-play has to both be conversational. Nobody wants you yelling stats and information at them the whole time. You want to have a conversation, talk with the viewer, talk with your analyst. But at the same time, when those big moments happen, you need to own them. And that doesn't mean you have to take them over. But it means you need to elevate them in whatever way that you do. Let the crowd, let the images take it over. But make sure that big moment is as big as you can possibly make it. And in soccer, that's even more important than I think any other sport. Because, as you said, you may only get two or three opportunities in any given match. What's your interaction like with your analyst? When you talked about some of them will like to sit back and watch in the early going. Um, so they kind of get a feel and they can understand what they're going to say before they really dive into it. Um, how do you work with an analyst in soccer that's maybe different than another sport? Yeah, I mean, I think they're all different, even within each sport. And you just have to kind of get to know who you're with. So my main goal is I will never put an analyst in a position that I don't think they can handle. I'm never going to ask them a question that I don't think they're prepared for. And that just comes with knowing, OK, am I getting somebody who's just jumping in? say to the college season, and I know they haven't done many college games. I'm not going to ask them for their take on the big picture of women's soccer in the (laughs) NCAA right now, you know, because in the end it benefits us all to make us all look good. So I, and I personally don't like a lot. I don't like peppering a lot of questions at the analyst. Um, The only time I'll do that is if I have somebody who doesn't automatically get his or herself into points all that often. Like if I need to direct them a little more, I will. Or if there's a question I feel like somebody watching the match has, I'll ask them that question. Um, But it it is, you just have to know who you're working with, know what they're comfortable with. And you do figure that out as you go along. And the other part is, and this actually happened during the World Cup at one point, um, you know, Kendra D. St. Aubin and I have done two World Cups together. She's one of my favorite people in the world, much less people to share a booth with. And I know there's nothing I can't throw at her. So I know she can handle anything. So we were doing one match. I don't remember which one it was. And I, I asked her a point blank question and I looked and she kind of turned and looked at me in the booth and put her arms up in the air. And I'm thinking, what, does she not understand the question? Like how this wasn't that hard. I think I asked which subs does she want to see off the bench in the second half. So then I tried to think about how, how do I rephrase this without just rephrasing it? Because that's going to sound ridiculous to the viewers. Hmm. Eventually I did kind of, I half answered it myself and gave her a couple things and then she picked up on it. And I found out later and I had no idea about this producer was talking to her. Mm. So, you know, that's one of those things that's hard because you don't know, you know, I, I don't know when the producer is talking, I can see when she is talking to the truck, you know, she's holding down her talk back button, but when they're talking to her, I don't know that. So if it, even if it's just a little look over with a nod, just to kind of make sure that I see they're paying attention, that they're focused on the game, that they're not, you can usually tell, you know, if they're if they're thinking somewhere else. Um, so I I don't know. That just happened. So I'm still kind of learning. I try to how to make sure that won't happen again. But you know, you, you share a lot of as you know, communication in the booth. That's a whole other show in and of itself. How people communicate without actually talking to one another, whether it's a little elbow here or pointing down at notes or you know whatever it may be. When do you talk? Uh, I, you know, basketball is so easy because I know for a fact that every four to five minutes I have a timeout. We go to commercial and I can sit and talk to my analyst and say, all right, what did you see? What if we go here? 
Um, can you do that as much in a soccer match? And, no, and how do you communicate? <laughs> you know, no, you pretty much, it's what I just said. It's yeah. all we have. And every now and then we'll scribble out notes to each other if okay. we need to. But yeah, for the most part, that's happening on air. You know, I, I'm asking, I'm having to ask those <laughs> questions on air because, yeah, you don't have those moments. And once you get going, and the only time that I really take the time to scribble something or I make sure or I'll hit both of our cough buttons so I can talk to her without anybody else hearing it is if there's something that one of us has gotten wrong. Like, hey, hey, you know, we've got this jersey number wrong. Jersey number 13 is actually, you know, rosy white. It's not who we thought it was or whatever. So it's only something really big like that that would ever cause that to happen. That's pretty rare. Otherwise, we talk a lot before. We do talk at halftime. And then otherwise, you're all hearing what we're talking about as we're figuring it out. I was going to say that probably goes a lot more toward pre-broadcast prep of, like, I need to know that these 15 things are, are something that's on her mind. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What are you watching when you, like, what's important to you as as a, as, as a fan of, of the sport first and foremost, what are you looking at on the field? Um, and, and what of that becomes important to you as a play-by-play announcer beyond who's got the ball and where it's going? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, this has uh, been a good test because if you ever have to call a soccer match off a monitor, right. Yeah. In today's day and age, you often do, you realize a lot of the things that are taken away from you. So, 90% of my time, truthfully, I'm watching where that ball is going and I'm seeing the people around it. But for me, I'm watching the ball and I'm trying to make sure I'm on top of that. But those other things that you look for, which, like I said, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Um, <laughs> watching the assistant referees where are they waving their flag is they're offside. So I especially if there's a play that's close, my eyes will dart over to that referee okay. watching your center referee. And where they're pointing, having to learn referee signals. I mean, it is an ongoing education for me because when I play it, I love to say now that I obviously operated on a need to know basis. And at the time, I guess I did not feel like I needed to know anything about the rules because when I got into calling matches, I had no clue. So watching, watching the referees that they're such a good indicator. If you're not sure or watch the body language of the players, if you're not sure what happened or who the ball went out on, watch the players, they're all going to go line up in the right spot or some are going to be mad and some are going to be happy. And that gives you a clue. So it's basically all those other context clues to help you figure out in case something happened off the ball, for example, or something happened on the sideline or somewhere that you weren't paying attention to at the moment and you still need to be able to talk about it. So I think those are the big things. And then every now and then, depending on the setup of the stadium, you know, I'm keeping an eye on subs, keeping an eye on benches, coaches, but generally I don't, I don't look at them all that often. I mean, I, I watch, I do watch my ISO monitor, which is helpful, especially for players on the far side of the field, especially in like the college game when there's 10,000 subs per game and you're never quite sure who's on the field. Um, so that ISO monitor becomes so important because it just gives you a tight shot. And as much as I sit there and I try to, I try to identify hair, shoes, the way they run, the way they carry their arms, like whatever it may be to help me identify players, it still is a challenge at times, especially if you get odd lighting and uniform combinations that are not meant for play-by-play <laughs> eyes, which is a whole other topic, and we don't need to go there right now. <laughs> is that number seven or number 24? I can't tell. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, if it's there, like um, my favorite combination, just quick side note, was like gray uniforms with maroon numbers at night. Okay, just I give up. Well, who are you trying to help with that? Like, did the players like that combination? Because it is not helping the people calling the match. Well, you, you hide from the other team, is what it is. <laughs> Yo, that must be camo. Okay. <laughs> um, the offside flag thing was like. No, was noticeable too because I was I was actually flipping back and I was watching a bunch of different games and um, one of the things that jumped out to me early on in a game is anytime there was an offensive run you made note of if there was an off offsides flag up or, or even down um, just to let people know you know what's happening in front of you is is real and safe so to speak yeah yeah because I think it's a big it's a question it's where my eyes are now trained to go so I figure if I'm looking there and I know, for example, uh, I want to say it was in that Portland match. I, I knew there was a goal that was going to be called back because I could see or there was a big save that was made. I think that's what it was. And I, I just I could tell the OK flags up. Don't everybody get all excited. And sometimes that still happens, but it happens way more off monitor. And it's so hard 
because you you have to either pause and not call something or like if a goal is scored, you have to call the goal and then you go back and correct yourself, which mm-hmm. is not ideal. But there's really not much else you can do when you can't see that assistant referee. And then when you just bring VAR into the equation, then that's a whole another can of worms as well, because that can add a lot more confusion. Even players don't know sometimes if a goal is going to count and they're all trying to look around before celebrating to make sure that there's not a you know VAR sign mm-hmm. being given, at least in the international game at the moment for the women. Um, how do you how do you walk the line of teaching what you're seeing as well? Um, and I mean that from the standpoint of like soccer is a it's a it's a popular game, but it's one of those where like I mean like I played it growing up as a kid. Um, I, I I broadcasted a very little bit when I first started out broadcasting, but I haven't done it in a very long time. And it's one of those things where if I were to turn a game on, there are certain things that I feel like the the through and through soccer fan might take for granted, but me as just like mm-hmm. a casual uh, a casual viewer um, wouldn't know or understand. Uh, how much teaching do you try to do, and and what are the things that you find are 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 necessary, or maybe over the line where you start to lose people who go like, yeah, we know that. Stop saying. It. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like you don't have to do an awful lot, but you almost do it without letting people know that you're doing it. I think JB Della Camera is a master of doing that, by the way. Um, but so, for example, don't say the 18. I'd say the 18 yard box. I, just I don't assume that people are going to know terminology. And it's more so, I think, you know, you can include a description as you're saying it. Flag goes up for offside. The ball, obviously, when it left the player's foot, she was definitely beyond the line. So I'm giving the definition of what the offside is and what they're looking for without Mm -hmm. making it obvious that that's what I'm doing. Or if my analyst says something that I know is very coach speak or it's it's pretty deep and only real soccer people are going to get, I'll ask them to explain it and I'll act like the dumb one. And that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll have them explain it to me um, just to make sure that everybody else knows what they're talking about. Because if I'm not sure, I can guarantee you a lot of our viewers aren't sure either. Or even if I am sure, I still think there are some things that need a little more explanation. And if I sense that, like Ali Wagner is a very technical analyst. So I often will pay extra attention when I'm with her to make sure that if she says something that I feel like needs explaining, that I'm going to help draw that out of her. I feel like that can almost be, can that be a good thing too, from a, a, a standpoint of, you know, if you're going to be the person who's going to draw that out of somebody and ask those questions it just gives you more topic of conversation and just gives you more i don't want to say like not that you need things to fill with but that gives you all right now let's go down this avenue and explain a little bit more about what we see sure i just i do think you need to be careful because while i laugh about saying like i don't mind sounding like an idiot of course i actually don't really want to sound like an idiot you don't want people to think the play-by-play totally doesn't know what's going on so you do want to do it in such a way as (laughs) to ask the question without making it seem like you have no clue what you're watching. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I do feel like it is, um, it's important because you should never assume. And even my director after our last NWSL match gave me a couple notes and he said, Hey, don't assume people know who Mark Parsons is say Portland Thorns head coach, Mark Parsons. We hadn't mentioned him yet. And the first time I said his name, I didn't say anything other than Mark Parsons. So it's, it's little reminders like that sometimes just to always, give people a little more and especially if you do that early in the game and then once you get later and you're going over things a second or third time then you don't need to do it as much but I think it goes back again into that in that early stages of a match that's your time to really do that is there a uh is there are there uh common traps that people that are walking into a new world might fall into a little bit like where uh, is there something that's a dead tell where it's like well this guy's just showing up to do his first game um, things <laughs> that pe- soccer yeah, like some this, true soccer people wouldn't say that type things. So, you know, people are picky about terminology, which I don't care as much about. Um, oh, what was it? Somebody got on me about sideline or end line versus touch line. I'm like, you know what? I live in America. It is a sideline. <laughs> it is an end line. I don't care what they call it in England. Okay. Mm. So I think soccer purists, 
who are more European based may have a certain expectation for what they hear. But I, I don't think that I don't think you have to play that way. Um, when I first did the Women's World Cup for Fox in 2015, one of the things they talked to us all about was it is OK to have an American voice. You don't need to say nil. You don't need to say pitch. Those are English terms. This is an international sport. And that really stuck with me. I I played the game. I never call it a pitch. Now, every now and then, just for word variation, I might throw some of that stuff in there. But I don't think um, I don't think those are a big tell if you Americanize it, so to speak. Um, I think it's more making the mistake of when to go into questions and stories when you shouldn't. But we all still do it. I mean, as I said, we all still do it. You know, just to know, okay, when they're in the attacking third, that's not the time to ask your analyst a question about tactics. You know, you that is the stuff that you learn as you go. And you kind of learn where you can cheat, where you're going to have more time. Okay, it's going to take them a while to set up this goal kick. Now we have time for a story. Those are the things you learn as you go along where you maybe don't know that when you're coming in. And I think the other thing is you don't want to be information vomiting at people. You don't want to show that you know what you're doing by spitting out statistics and facts and history and all of that right off the bat. People don't want that either. You know, so I think sometimes people make the mistake of doing that, making up for lack of experience by spitting out information. And you have to be careful with how you put that information out there as well. Um, outside of setting up for a goal kick, uh, when are best times that you find to, to, <laughs> to walk away from the physical action on the field and, and, and storytell a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously a stoppage is the best. So sure, if, sure. Like, a, like for a goal kick or even a foul sometimes, I don't, I don't always need to go back and see fouls. Like I, those, I don't need to see a replay. Okay. There's not much we can actually say about it. Look, right. she tripped her, whatever, you know? So I think anytime there's a stoppage or the ball goes out and you know, it's a throw in, in the defensive third, always be careful in the offensive third of the field. You never, even a stoppage there. You don't want to do it. If, cause if you have a chance to be setting something up, okay, it's a free kick. All right, well, let's set up the drama around that. It's a corner kick. Let's set the drama around that. So it's in that defensive third of the field. That's definitely the best time to do it. Um, you know, if there's a lot of passing back and forth and it's you know, like, what are you calling? If it's really just the back line, you know, passing back and forth to one another, that's a time you can do it. Um, you do take a chance if you have a team that likes to press and might all of a sudden be trying to steal the ball, but you just shift gears. But you know, in essence, it's when you're in that defensive third of the field, when the defenders have the ball in their third of the field is a good time, usually, that you can try to storytell or go off ball a little bit more. Um, from a terminology standpoint, I know you, you talked about you can call it as an American game and you don't have to necessarily say touchline every time. Um, but when I knew I might like be in trouble, I was <laughs> I was sitting in our co- I was sitting in our coach's office and we were talking about a player and she goes, well, Peyton. Uh, she really likes to meg people, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, I, I'm sorry, she does what? Um, and and she goes, well, she nutmegs people. It's when when you kick the ball between their legs and you run around them. And I was like, oh, of course. Um, what types of things like that are important or happen frequently, or are words that are more common knowledge to a soccer base that you should have in there? Oh my gosh. I don't know. That's a good question. I, cause I wouldn't have thought of that nutmeg before until you just <laughs> said it. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I could say that there's a lot maybe you could tell me, I mean, if you're, if you're more, you know, getting into this. Or, or is like, that one of those things where like, is that one of those things where like, listen, you're better off staying as layman as possible because that's the easiest way to not step in it. Yes. I think if you're in doubt, absolutely. Um, but otherwise you can use them. I mean, I'm always a little hesitant with nutmeg anyway, even <laughs> though I looked up the history of it because you could think about <laughs> sure, yeah. some ways that that might not be yeah. the best if people read into it too much, but it was something about some weird spice trait. I mean, there really is some weird history behind that term. That is not what you might think it would be and you can use it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think too, you don't have to fancy it up with those words, you like, you know, the Croy move, that's one of those. I hardly ever use that. I've had a few analysts who've used it. Um, but And that's a very, very soccer-specific term that most soccer people know, but most everybody does not. Um, you know, And I think there's even other references, too. You know, if you talk about you know, Maradona and the hand of God, I mean, okay, 
most soccer people probably know that, but don't assume. So that's, again, one of those things where if you're going to do that, throw in a little context. Just give one more beat of a line of information to help those people out who may not know what the heck you're talking about. Because I don't think... I was going to say, I don't think making yourself sounds smart. It just makes you sound like you think you're smarter than everybody else is, and nobody likes that. Right, it makes you pretentious. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Um, I thought it was interesting, one thing you said uh, when you were on with Richard Deitch. um, You had talked about earlier in your career when you had tried out being a a soccer analyst yourself, um, (laughs) and basically said, like, I, I realized that, like, yes, I played soccer, but... I didn't like being in this chair where I had to really talk about it from an analytical standpoint. Um, How much analysis bleeds into what you do um, on now a play-by-play side? And and how do you handle getting into that kind of technical stuff um, in two ways? I guess, one, to make a point yourself, but also, two, to hopefully lead um, whoever you're working with along with you and see if you can get them to make a point. Yeah, well, so when I first started doing play-by-play, that was one of the hardest things for me, was to leave the analysis behind, because even for a very brief time, I did a little basketball analysis as well, and I think that for some reason, that's where I was worst at it. I I did it worse there, and I really had to walk that line. I mean, it seems so basic, but, you know, the play-by-play, the who and the what, and the analyst, the why and the how, and I mean, I would write who and what on top of my boards to remind myself at the beginning that this is, I wanted to be very strict with that. Now, I think once you're in it and you have some experience, then, you know, so when I did ACC Sunday Night Hoops as a sideline reporter and Tim Brando was my play-by-play, Tim is an example of a play-by-play announcer who very much inserts his opinion a lot. That's just part of who Tim is. However, he's earned it. He had done basketball for so long. So I think I do think you kind of have to earn that as a play-by-play announcer and you need to be careful because you are not the one there to give your opinion or to give your analysis. That is what your expert analyst sitting next to you is for. So I generally try to keep that for the most part out of what I do unless it's something where, so I was a goalkeeper. So if it's a specific play with a goalkeeper that I feel like I can add something because I have that type of knowledge, then I might go to that. Or if it's, something from NWSL history where it's a match that I called and I can bring that in and I can say, well, you know, Paul Riley's teams have been doing this since they were the Western Europe clash. They press, this is what they do. I feel like you, I have earned the right to be able to add in a little more analysis in certain areas. But like I said, in the end, it's the person sitting next to me who people really want to hear doing that. You know, they're the one that's paid to give their, analysis and their expertise so i think again if i do it it's always with the idea of how am i bringing my analyst into this what discussion does the viewer need to hear right now every now and then i'll I'll go off on a referee call that i don't (laughs) agree with maybe but i try not to do that either too often you know i feel bad for those guys but um yeah i i mean i i think it's it's always still something that you walk the line with and you don't want to do it too much and i hope somebody in my ear will tell me if I start straying a little too far in that direction, because I don't want to do that. Um, how important is shape to what you talk about or what you mention or call, or how does that factor into what you need to know? Meaning the shape, like a four, four, two, the right. formation on the field. Right. Um, Beyond just saying it like at the outset, like this is the way they play, which means they might be more aggressive. Yeah. Uh, for me, honestly, it doesn't, I, I, it doesn't mean that much. I say it at the beginning. It's important that I know who's where, but honestly, I, I rely on my analysts. If there's a change in shape, that's up to them. I can help them if I see it, and I will watch for it, especially if you're in a game where you know, a team is trailing and they're putting numbers forward. All of a sudden, they're three in the back. You want to know that. Or if they make a change, they switch from a three front to a two front, you probably want to be aware of that. So I guess I would say I'm I'm only more aware of it when it changes because then you need to let people know about it and your analysts set them up for why it is happening. So I think that's, and I mean, understanding like everybody plays a different way. Even just because they're in a four, three, three doesn't mean they're going to play that three front the way another team plays a three front. So I don't think there's necessarily an assumption that's going to come with the type of formation they play, unless it's something like a, you know, a five, four, one, and then you kind of know they're planning on 
sitting back and doing a lot of defending. So it does give you a little bit of indication as to what you might see. But I think once the game gets going, I really only pay attention when something changes. Um, what's important to you uh, beyond that to know prep-wise going into them? Like if I took everything away from you and I said, like, you can have a roster card with names and pronunciations and, like, stats mm-hmm. on it. But beyond that, you get to choose, like, three things. Um, what are the three things, like, what do you need to know about a team or about players going into something that makes you most comfortable that you can do a good job? Well, you're talking to somebody who is a, <laughs> I definitely hoard information. So that would be really hard for me because I think 90% of the work gets done before I sit down in that chair. So, I mean, my boards, I sent you a picture of yeah. them. They are chock full of information, you know, um, But if I had to, I would say, honestly, uh, take something away from the coach conversation because I want to know specifically what they're trying to do. What's important to them in this match? Are they trying to focus on pushing the team to one side of the field? Stuff to look for. Essentially, I want to know what I'm going to give people to look for. I think that's important. So maybe three points from the coaches, keys from the coaches. I'd want those coaches' keys. Um, Hmm. I definitely like to know uh, experience of players, both in season and historically. So is this their first start? Is this, have they been out for the last five matches? I need to have a little bit of history, like recent history to understand, has the coach made a change here and why? So if this player is starting up top and she hasn't played in five games, why does he want her there? So I want to know that stuff going in. Um, And then I I feel like I have to have at least a line on each player beyond, you know, height, where they went to school and what their stats are for the season. I want to know at least one thing to help somebody else get to know that player, even if it's just, you know, two time FIFA world player of the year or member of the World Cup winning U.S. national team or something. I want something else to be able to say about each player. Does that count? I think I just jammed in a lot more than three. No, things. that was good. No, I mean, well, three <laughs> was arbitrary. Um, <laughs> no, that's that's uh, that's good though. Because um, I was, I, I mean, when I when I kind of sat down initially, I, I, I mean, I did my prep normally, and I was like, all right, here's my backstory on everybody that I can find, et cetera, et cetera. But from a soccer standpoint, I was sitting there and I was like, all right, well, what do I need to know? Um from a, a specialty standpoint about doing yes. a soccer game versus a volleyball match that um, most, again, like without sounding pretentious, sets you up to sound like you know why you're there. Well, exactly. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you if you will. So actually this got me thinking, all right, so if I had a wish list for what I could get in game notes, and trust me, I have tried to share this <laughs> wish list with many people. They, they have not asked for this advice, but I have given it anyway. So I would wish for a complete box score for every game to that point. Because if you have a box score, you can go back and do a lot of your own work. You can see who started, who scored goals, who's been on the bench. You can go and do that work yourself if the sports information director or PR person has not done it for you. So give me box scores. If you really want to help my life out, give me one page that shows just the names of the starting lineup in each game. Want to help me out some more? Give me a page that shows goal scores and time of goal in each game. Does this team give up goals early? Do they give up goals late? You know, what trends might I find there? I mean, essentially, that's what a good PR person or sports information director or researcher does. They find trends. And if you don't have that and you have to do that on your own, which a lot of us do, especially once you get into college sports, then you want to find those trends. And those are three things that I think are awesome to have. And I request them from just about everybody that I do anything with and drive them crazy with all my requests. And the one thing, so in NWSL, we have our research guru, Jen Cooper, who knows more about the women's professional soccer game than I think anyone. And uh, she makes a, a grid for me, which I always tell her it's my favorite document that she sends. She sends us this whole you know, pack of notes for every game, but the grid is my favorite. And it the grid just shows each player from each team and it'll show each game on the top of the grid and then it'll show start sub out injured did not play whatever so i can have a quick look right there and i can look down and i can see both by individual player 
what their participation has been like, and then by individual games. So if I want to see, I want to double check, okay, wait, when did all the World Cup players get back? I can go back and look. Or how many starters did they have out the last time they played this team? That, I think, is hugely, hugely helpful. Uh, what what other types of trends do you like? I mean, like when I do football, like I'm always looking at like what a team does on third and long. Like I want that mm-hmm. kind of breakdown. Like how many times did they have third and seven or plus? Like outside of when someone scores in a game, because that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, what types of statistical information most piques your interest when you prepare? I'll be honest with you. I don't think soccer is a sport that's driven as much by that type of trend and statistical information as many other sports are, truthfully. And that's not just being lazy. That's no, being no. honest. You can. Uh, we get Opta does our reports for NWSL, and I honestly don't use most of it because it doesn't even make sense to me. So they have a dribble completion rate. And at our production meeting, we all looked around and was like, what exactly does that mean? Dribble completion yeah, rate. Say, I yeah. think, <laughs> you know, and I'm also, I mean, I'm not a fan of analytics and all that with baseball. So I'm a little bit old school in that. One thing I think that you might maybe could look at for soccer is you could look at trends if you can get this, but it is very hard to find. First of all, I love set pieces. I want to know how often they score and how often they concede on set pieces. Um, corner kicks, who takes them and do they play them short? Or where do they play them? Now, again, a lot of that only can come from video review. There's not somebody necessarily that's going to be able to give you that information. Opta can tell me corner kick accuracy. So how many times do they connect with their target? Well, that's that's somewhat helpful. Mm. Or, you know, when they get into their attack, um, how many times are they crossing the ball? So if you if you know you have a team that leads the league in crosses, you get a better idea of kind of what they're going to look to do. Or if you know you have a team who... <laughs> dribble completion rate is really high <laughs> then maybe they're a team that, that attacks more that way so um I, I just think it's different game to game and i honestly think you could do without most of it i, I don't I, I truly don't think that um that type of for me my analysts may disagree they may look into that a lot more but for me i don't spend an awful lot of time on that interesting that's uh yeah. that's good to know it's actually somewhat relieving yeah (laughs) relaxing and puts you at ease a little bit when you think about it that way um i wanted to ask you just a couple of questions about you generally as well if that's um cool um sure and i you you started at the atlanta journal constitution correct i did um what do you think that a print background did early on in your career to influence how you maybe approach what you do now um, and maybe the way you get information or disseminate information or, um, I don't even, I string words together because you started as a writer. Yeah, I, I think it's a huge part of who I am and how I do what I do. I've always been a writer at heart. I mean, I love to write. I love to read. I actually miss writing a lot, doing what I do now. Um, and I just think you get a real solid background in the way of, asking the questions that you ask and then figuring out how to tell a story and all of that, essentially, you know, when you go into a broadcast, you have the game and that is a story, but you are also a storyteller. So I think those skills of reporting were so helpful to me and I'm so glad that I had them as a foundation. I mean, I was an English and journalism double major. So there was a lot of writing that happened. And I, as you look at my notes, I mean, I still, that is how I retain things Mm. I write them, you know, I, I, I've always been a writer and I do think that that storytelling background, I've told so many young people and I feel like it's changed a lot now. These amazing communications programs that are out there and the opportunities for broadcast, <laughs> it's way more than sitting in front of a blue sheet like I did in college for one <laughs> semester, you know, I mean, I, it is amazing what they can do, but I think don't learn to write in sound bites. Don't learn to just call in the cadence of the way you call a match learn to really tell a story and that i I would tell anybody to do that whether and and writing is the best way to do it now you can't i've always been a bit long-winded as you can probably tell and that sometimes gets me in trouble so sometimes i do have to work on cutting that down but i i do think it i would tell anybody get the basics which is how to ask good questions and how to tell a story and you get that in print does that impact how you tell stories about people on the air? Um, and, t- I, and you've got to fit it in how a game goes, and you might only have 15 seconds, but like, will, 
will you kind of in your mind structure something a little bit ahead of time as opposed to just hear the notes and we'll do it live? Yeah. So it's funny that you say that. I was just thinking about that this week and I was appreciating how when I get to read articles, the in the depth that they can go into. And I so appreciate that when I read stories about, especially that, that go deep into players, you know, into their history or whatever it may be, personal life, training, whatever it is. Because we, it is very difficult to go that deep in a broadcast. You just can't do it justice for the most part. So you do need to change how you are going to tell a story because it has to fit within the context of what you're doing. And I think one of the most awful things to listen to and it's it's happened to everybody's happened to me is when you get into a story and you keep getting interrupted by the game and then you keep trying to go back to the story and people are like for the love of god let it go <laughs> you know at that point they do not give a crap anymore about what you're talking about because the game has to be front and center so you've got to figure out how to fit it into a broadcast and that very much changes how i would tell a story if i was writing a feature and even you know i started as a sideline reporter so I learned how to tell stories in 15 to 20 second increments. You know, how can I do it before they get to the line of scrimmage? How can I do it before the timeout is over? Whatever it is, it has to fit or people want you out of the way. They, and that same goes with your play-by-play if you're calling a match. They want you and that story out of the way of the game that they're watching. It only works if it doesn't get in the way of the game. And so it has to be told in a different way. And that has been something I've learned. And I, I will say there are certain things and this has only happened recently that I will kind of script out a line here or there, because I, like I said, I appreciate the poetry of the way a lot of the, uh, the British guys in particular call a match. I love listening to them call a match. And that is not to say I want to sound like that, but if I want to improve myself and vary the way that I call a match and I start thinking, all right, we all have our potential word choice that we go to. So how can I vary my word choice up? How can I inject a few of these moments of poetry where they, where will they fit? And there are a certain few areas or moments that I think you can kind of script out beforehand. And that can go for storytelling, too. If there's something I want to make sure I don't botch it because it's a lot of details that could be difficult. It could be sensitive. And you want to make sure you tell it correctly. I, I will write a lot of that down, at least the bullet points of it to make sure that I'm getting everything I need in there. I just covered a lot right there, but hopefully that answered your question. (laughs) It was perfect. Um, How did you learn to do play-by-play in general? Um, When you made that shift into that chair, um, what kind of questions did you ask and and what kind of conversations did you have to get you ready? Yeah, I I was terrified, first of all, but I, I asked a lot of the people that were around me. I mean, I had producers at Fox Sports South who really would sit down with me and we'd go over a game and that was kind of hell to be honest with you, but it was very useful because I mean, I really had no idea. I, I tried to watch, I tried to play close attention to the people who I respected in the business and who I worked with. I reached out to a lot of people. I mentioned Tim Brando, West Durham, even later in my career, uh, Beth Moens. I mean, I asked a lot of questions and it was a lot of what you were asking me about, you know, how do you time, how do you decide when you're going to go to what you go to? I think that is always the biggest decision, that decision-making process, that realization that you and the producer, you really direct the way that broadcast is going to go. So how do you make those decisions? And at the beginning, I just kept it very simple. They said, just call what's in front of you. So that's how I started. Okay. I'm not going to try to do too much. I'm going to call what I see. And then I could start adding more and start figuring out, okay, well, I don't want to just call the action. I think that people expect and deserve more than that, but I had to get that part down first and figure out the cadences and, you know, making sure I was letting the game breathe and making sure I was setting my analyst up and I was doing my job. But at the beginning, I just kept it very, very simple and let, if I had a more experienced analyst, I would lean on them heavily and take it from there. And it's, it's constantly evolving. I mean, it is constantly evolving, figuring out how you're telling the stories and when you tell the stories and when you just get the heck out of the way and let the game be the star, which you should always, that's lesson number one, protect the game. No matter what role you're in in a broadcast, protect the game because that is what people are tuning in to see. That's a good, uh, that's a good final takeaway on there. Um, <laughs> If uh, if people want to find uh, Jen Hildreth on television, um, where do they look? Well, 
I was just able to announce today that they can now tune in to the ACC network because I will be calling women's soccer, women's basketball and softball for the ACC network. So I'm so excited about that. It's a conference I have been with since the beginning of my career. So I'm very excited to be a part of that. And also the NWSL on ESPN. We have a few more matches to close out the season, including the playoffs, which are in October. So you can be sure to check out the schedule for those. And uh, yeah, that's that's it right now. How much is uh, how much is interest uh, peaked, by the way, over the last two months or so for NWSL games? Oh, it's been it's been great. We've seen record attendance across the league. Twenty five thousand in Portland for the match we had out there. You know, as everybody knows, the challenge right now is to sustain it, yeah. to keep that momentum going. Cause we've seen it before and uh, we've seen it dip off. And I hope that people do realize that a big reason why the U S women's national team is as successful as it is. And the players themselves will tell you this is this domestic league, the national women's soccer league. They're the only team in the women's world cup that had all of their players on their roster playing domestically. They were the only nation that could say that and look where they finished up. So there is amazing soccer going on here domestically. And yeah, I think, yes, I'm doing a little sell job right now, but <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's important that people realize that and continue to support it. If they want to keep seeing our team stay on top. All right. That is Jen Hildreth joining us here on PXP cast. Kind of like that stat note. I, I know I said it when we recorded as well, but like, there's not a ton of stats in soccer, and it doesn't really play toward that too much. A little bit more storytelling, a little bit more analyst work, but uh, when you're trying to dive into a sport you haven't really been around a lot, thinking about, hey, when does this team score their goals? Like, that's something that didn't dawn on me. Um, and then, of course, I was curious... And, and we've had this conversation before. Uh, Jake Zivin was on uh, the voice of the Portland Timbers uh, a long time ago. We talked about, like, how much British broadcast do you work in? Um, <laughs> so it was interesting to hear Jen basically say, listen, you call your game. You're not British. You don't have a British accent. You don't have to say Ball State have scored. Uh, and you don't have to necessarily use British slang. You can, you can call it a sideline. Work in touchline. Call it a sideline. It's an American game. It's a field, not necessarily a pitch. Um, that was a little, um, putting of my mind at ease, although I'm still, uh, hopeful that I can work in a couple of vocabulary words like nutmeg, uh, that make me sound smart and that I do them appropriately so that I don't sound stupid. That's my biggest fear heading into this, but we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, you guys all know I do gymnastics on television. I've done wrestling on television. Uh, I like getting involved in the unknown and the uncomfortable. And uh, that is exactly what's going to happen. I want to do soccer tonight. So we'll talk about it next week. I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, until then, my name is Joel Gannett. Jen Hildreth was our guest. Check her out Sunday on the ACC network. I love that we've got an ACC network. Syracuse wasn't in it when I was in college, but they are now. So I feel like I can get more of my orange fill as soon as AT&T picks it up. I feel like John Oliver right now, just throwing daggers at AT&T. Um, that, that would be great, though, because I'd love to watch it. Uh, but until uh, until next week, my name is Joel Gannett. This is PXP Cast, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.